0: Hey, thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church Podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. If this teaching leaves you with a question about the content or a story of what God is doing in your life, please send a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church because we'd love to hear from you. Well, good morning. morning. How many are familiar with the television series Everybody Loves Raymond? A few people have seen it. It It was on the air from like 2000, or I'm sorry, 1996 to like 2005. Again, it told the story of a guy named Ray Barone, played by Ray Romano. Where Barone lived with his family on Long Island and lived with his, his wife, his three kids, but also his, his mother and father and brother lived across the street. And if you're familiar with that show, you know that the matriarch, matriarch of the family, Marie Barone, she would be quick to give advice whether or not it was solicited or not. She would give advice on cooking, she would give advice on raising the kids, and she would even, uh, as this clip shows, she would even give advice on what it takes to be a good marriage. Now you listen to me. Maybe you could all use some advice from someone who's in a position to give it. See what you did, (laughs) Amy? You think we have nothing to offer? We've been married 46 years. We've seen the lows, we've seen the highs. What day was the high? God bless you, you know nothing. (laughs) And you too, you're always fighting. And the reason you get so upset is because you think there's something wrong with that. Look at us. This is experience. This is wisdom. This is (laughs) juicy. You want some real marriage advice? I'm going to give you the secret now. There's going to be yelling. It was a funny clip, and obviously we, can, uh, we should probably take her advice with a little grain of salt. Uh, we can't agree with everything she said, but one thing we can not agree on is that marriage can be incredibly hard, amen? Incredibly hard at times, uh, and that's very hard. And consequently, we have a lot of people that bail out of marriages early on. In fact, we have a, a divorce rate that they say is 40 to 50 percent on the first time somebody is married. And that goes for Christians and non-Christians. And then they suggest that on the second marriage, the divorce rate is as high as 70%. So again, divorce looms over America in many different ways. But although no one, I think, or few people would claim that divorce is a positive experience, most people wouldn't want us to put tighter restrictions around divorce. We want to have that freedom to, to divorce no matter what we said in our vows. In fact, some people have the attitude to say, that says, suggests, and says, you know, yeah, I took these vows for better, for worse, for richer and poorer, but at that point, you know, I was in love, and now I'm not as in love as I was before. Or yes, I meant those vows, but I didn't know that my marriage would, would restrict my career choices so much. And that attitude, unfortunately, has spilled over in the church, and the church even adds, tries to add scripture to it and says, you know, don't judge me. You know, my marriage is between me and my husband. And again, we, we get a lot of cues from as far as marriage and divorce from the culture, but we shouldn't get our cues from culture. We should get our cues from the Bible, no matter how uncomfortable those, those passages kind of speak, that speak to divorce are. And anyway, we're going through this series called Elephants in the Church. Most of you know what an elephant in the room is. It's the idea that you've got this uncomfortable topic that people don't want to talk about. They know it's there, but they really don't want to talk about it. And likewise, an elephant in the church is really an uncomfortable topic in the church that people know is there, but they really don't want to talk about. But as Christians, again, we are not to avoid those topics. We're supposed to be like the Apostle Paul who kind of hit those elephants head on. You know, so much so that he's left us a a good book, a good letter called 1 Corinthians, that we can use as kind of a guidebook to help us to, to address these elephants in the room. Now, last week, Austin addressed the elephant in the room of sexuality, and this week I have the fun task of addressing the elephant in the room of divorce. Now, before I continue on, I want you to know that I understand, I know a lot of people have gone through divorce, maybe possibly even in the midst of divorce, and that they were painful. The divorce was very painful, and my intention is not to add more pain. I'm trying to be as sensitive as I can as I talk about the topic of divorce, you know, my, so my intention is not to add any pain or to shame anybody, but just to get out some biblical principles that will, again, show us what, how God views marriage and divorce, and hopefully, again, leave us a, make us think before we actually would, would jump into a divorce court again. Anyway, we know that divorce is a tough topic. It's an uncomfortable topic. It's an uncomfortable topic for me. It was also a very uncomfortable topic for Paul. But Paul had to deal with it because divorce had become this very hot-button issue in the church. And if he did not address it, it would risk the, the, the stabilization of the church. And the church back then in the first century was in its infancy. And so having all this divorce and different things going on, and even sexual immorality, and all that kind of stuff, is that it, 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 would, it would risk the, the destabilization of the church. Anyway, so Paul begins his divorce talk in the seventh chapter of the letters of the first Corinthians about verse 10, when he says, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and a husband must not divorce his wife. Now, the key thing to, to read here is that first line where he says to the married, I give this command, not I, but but the Lord. What he's saying is, this is from Jesus. This is not Paul's opinion. This is actually gleaned from the Gospels, where Jesus talked about divorce. And Jesus had a whole lot of things to say about divorce. And so at this time, it's actually helpful to go back and look at some of those things before we continue on in Paul's letter. A little bit of background. Again, Jesus was living in a, in a Jewish culture, and the Jewish people had basically two views of divorce. Similar today, they had a a conservative view and more of a liberal view. Now, the conservative view basically believed that divorce divorce shouldn't happen unless there was some sort of infidelity in the marriage, unless there was cheating in the marriage. And they, they glean that. They take that idea. They take that law from a passage in Deuteronomy 24 where Moses says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. The key word here is indecency. That's actually a disputed word because, again, the conservative Jews would translate or interpret indecency as marital infidelity, as marital unfaithfulness. But then you have that word indecency can also kind of take into account a lot of different types of sexual sins, really, as Austin talked about last week. And so some would say, well, it's not just marital unfaithfulness, it could be a whole bunch of other stuff that had to do with sexual immorality. And then there was the extreme liberal view that would say, you know what, indecency could relate to just about anything, anything that the wife was doing that I didn't like. And so you had, again, these disputed, these two, two groups of people, these two groups of lawyers, whatever you want to call them, that were disputing this point of law. And we, we know that what they often do, they would try to draw Jesus into the dispute. And that's what we see, see, see happening here. And so we read, some Pharisees came to him, him being Jesus, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And so what they were trying to do was to get Jesus to decide which view he's going to take. Is he going to take the conservative view that says, nope, it's just for marital unfaithfulness? Or the more liberal view that says, yeah, any reason you want, you can divorce your wife. And really, we don't know at this point really who, as far as whether we're talking about the liberals or conservative asking the question. But we do know that during that time, and even today, that oftentimes men or looking for just about any opportunity to leave his wife. And it could be related to something that's as simple as cooking, that he doesn't like the way she cooks, doesn't like the way she looks, doesn't like the way she, she, she takes care of the house. Or it could just be that the guy just found another gal. And so that's, again, what could, could be going on here. They're looking for any opportunity, any excuse to leave their wife. And so what they're trying to do here is get Paul, not Paul, I'm sorry, Jesus, to nail down Jesus where he stood on the issue. But rather than allowing himself to be kind of sucked into the argument, he doesn't answer the question directly. He kind of points to the fact that divorce was never part of God's original design for marriage. And so he says, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife And the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Those are beautiful words. So beautiful that I think some of you have used them in your weddings before, right? I know, because I've performed the weddings and used these very words. They're beautiful words, but again, what Jesus is trying to do is basically not get caught up in an argument of when somebody is allowed to get divorced, but rather point to the biblical view of marriage. Again, something that occurred way back at the beginning of the time. And that, that marriage was something ordained by God, the holy sacrament ordained by God, a covenant of marriage, a covenant that, 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 that worked itself out in the intertwining of two lives, so much so that the best metaphor for describing it is one flesh, the union of one flesh. And then again, that, you know, this is something that God had ordained, and that again, nothing you couldn't unravel this union without any sort of dire circumstances, any sort of collateral damage, which some of you know, you've experienced what it's like getting a divorce. In many places, and many times, it feels like the ripping of flesh, and all the collateral damage that goes with it. And so again, we see here that Jesus is pointing to the, the biblical model of marriage. But his answer, obviously, is not good enough for the, for the Pharisees. And so they throw him another question. They say, you know, if, if, if marriage is this wonderful thing that God ordained, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? For one, he didn't command it, but we'll talk about that in a second. But I want to explain what a certificate of divorce is back then. It's not totally unlike a certificate of divorce back then is not totally unlike a, a, a divorce decree today. It basically dissolves a marriage, but unlike today, the certificate back then didn't try to spell out all the distribution of assets. You know the child custody, the the support, and all that kind of stuff. No, the certificate of the divorce was basically one thing, uh, used for the one thing, and it was to make sure that everybody knew that the woman was no longer married. Why was that important? It was important again because if this woman would be seen with another man, even in public, she could immediately be accused of adultery, because they know she's married. She could show the certificate. The other thing, the other reason they would give a certificate of divorce was so that the woman was free to actually uh, uh, have a job basically as a prostitute without being accused of adultery. And so that's what it was for, is basically to make sure that everybody knew that this woman was no longer married. But going back to this question, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus answers by saying, Moses permitted you to divorce your wife, your wives, because your hearts." were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. Now, this is one of those disputed passages. It's really hard to kind of figure out what he's talking about here. But some suggest that what he's talking about is that because of sin, when sin entered the world, you entered, a, along with it was a hardness of heart, was, a, was a, the possibility for bitterness, anger, rage, jealousy, all the muck and stuff that we find in a lot of marriages. And so, again, you know, if you have a situation where you have a male in this case, with a very hard heart, if he found out his wife cheated on him, and he could not get a divorce, he would make that person's life miserable. Could make it totally miserable. At a minimum, what he would do is possibly shun her, isolate her. At a maximum, he would physically or emotionally abuse her, even possibly kill her. And again, this was not the way from the beginning. The beginning, there was no sin involved. But, but, but again, because sin entered the world, they had to deal with it. And this was the way to deal with it. So the certificate of divorce was really a concession for the hardness of, of the human being's heart, but also the safety of the wife. And it really, as a side note, even though... It's not, direct, uh, not uh, addressed directly by Jesus or even by Paul. I think it's implied here that if there is any sort of emotional or physical abuse going on, those are grounds for, at a minimum, separation and a maximum, really, divorce. I personally would not recommend that anybody say in a marriage that would be emotionally or physically abused. Anyway, so at this time, it's probably the, the Pharisees are probably a little still frustrated because Jesus is not giving the answer that they're looking for. And Jesus knows what they're thinking, so he kind of puts the nail, you know, kind of, kind of nails it down, nails, the, nails what they're looking for down. He goes on and says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And in this one little phrase, he's affirming, again, his belief that the only option for the only, only way you could be divorced is because of marital unfaithfulness but he's also kind of trying to shooting down the liberal idea that marriage or divorce could happen for any reason at all he says no you see again people thought that okay if I would get divorce my wife and as long as I gave her walking papers that said she was no longer married everything's cool, the people see me okay God, I'm good in God's eye He says, Jesus is basically saying no you know, you think you can get divorced just because you don't like the way the woman cooks, the way she dresses, you know, how she talks, whatever it is. You don't like those type of things, but that doesn't give you grounds for divorce. And, and more than that, since you were still married in the eyes of God, and you're basically, if you go on to get married, remarried, you're basically committing adultery, and you're allowing your spouse to commit adultery also. Very strong words, right? Very strong. And again, what he's trying to do, he's not trying to make everybody's life miserable. He's trying to elevate marriage to its rightful spot. And say, when you get married, this is serious stuff here. This isn't a casual shack up. This is, this is for life, is what he's talking about here. You know, so Jesus was pro-marriage. He was anti-divorce. And I would challenge anybody to read through all the Gospels and tell me anything different. Because you can't find it. Believe me, I've looked through it. And all Jesus is doing is taking the view of his daddy. In fact, in in, in the book of uh, Malachi, God talks about it. Through through Malachi, God speaks about the importance of, of staying with the wife of your youth. So much so that he refers to divorce. He says divorce, I hate divorce. He says, has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his, and why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit, and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. God doesn't say a lot places where he hates something. He hates divorce because, again, divorce is, again, something that he's ordained to allow the people of God to rise up in unity. Really, in in the New Testament, we see that the the marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. And you can't have divorce and maintain that picture, maintain that witness. So anyway, that's kind of Jesus' view of marriage and divorce. And now we switch back over to Paul. And again, Paul, in that first passage, uh, verse 10, kind of again affirmed Jesus' teaching. But then he goes on to, to kind of qualify his view on divorce, based on the evolving circumstances of the local community called the church. And so we see in verse 12, where he begins by saying, to the rest, I say this, I not the Lord. Now again, I just stop here to remind you that what he's saying is, what I'm about to say is not from Jesus. This is my opinion. But that's okay because Jesus was, or Paul was an apostle and he, could, he still spoke with a certain amount of authority. But he wanted to let the people know this is his opinion because Jesus had never addressed this situation. And we know what the situation is because when he says to the rest of this, or the rest I say, when he's talking about the rest, what he's talking about are mixed marriages. He's talking about people, uh, uh, believers and non-believers, being married together. And he's basically, you know, trying to deal with the question, what do we do now if I'm married to an unbeliever? And now you would think that Paul would have dealt with this before he had left Corinth. He would have put together a policy and procedure manual or something. He says, this is how you deal with it. But you've got to remember, he was only there about 18 months. He was, a, he was doing a church startup. So he was dealing with a lot of stuff. And probably at the early part of the church, it wasn't a big deal because, you know, people were coming into the church from all different backgrounds. You know, coming in from, you know, from, from all, all different faiths, um, social status, that sort of thing. And so it wasn't a big deal yet that you had two people together. One that was kind of getting excited about their faith, the other person wasn't. But what happens is, you know, over time, you know, it, it added some tensions to the church. Because as you know, even, even today, you know, if you've got kind of a mixed marriage where you have a believer and a non believer, over time, you know, it can, it, can, it can add a little stress to the marriage because back then and even today, some people are thinking, okay, well, my spouse got involved in this thing called Christianity and really I thought it was kind of a passing fad. But two years later or three years later, she's still involved in that or he's still involved in that. And so what happens is you, you almost start feeling this sense of jealousy and it creates this tension in the home. And so that was happening. You had this tension between the believer and their non-believing spouse. And so basically what people are asking, what should we do? And Paul basically in so many words said, stick it out. He goes on to say, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And I would say the same thing. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. He's pretty clear on that. And his logic makes sense. You know, from the message translation, I like how it goes on to say The unbelieving husband shares to an extent in the holiness of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is likewise touched by the holiness of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be left out, as it is, they are also included in the spiritual purposes of God. It's kind of interesting. It's almost like the holiness of believer rubs off on the unholiness of the unbeliever. And over time, what could happen, what often happens, is that the unbeliever gets saved. And some of you can attest to that. I can attest to it. My, my first marriage, my wife had passed away in 2001. My first father-in-law, you know, he had probably up into his 50s he wasn't a believer, but my mother-in-law definitely was, and he made her life hell, but she stuck it out. She stuck to her faith, kept going to church, everything else, and, and all of a sudden, one day, he accepted Christ. He was watching TV or something, uh, uh, and he accepted Christ, and he became a Christian, changed his whole life. So I think that speaks to what this passage happened. It's hard, but again, you stick it out, and you continue to be a witness to your unbelieving spouse, that's going to rub off. That's the point. But you also Paul's a realist, and he also understands that this is not always the case, because the reality is some people's hearts have become so hardened against God that they want nothing to do with God. They say, you know, listen, I'm I'm sick of listening to this Christian music. I'm sick of reading you reading the Bible every morning. I'm sick of you trying to pray for the kids at night. I'm just sick of all that stuff. I just don't want any part of it anymore. I'm out of here. And basically, you know, they're saying, Paul, well, what what do I do in that circumstance? And Paul basically says, let him go. He says, but if the unbeliever, unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. This is very hard teaching. But it makes sense. Because what he's saying is you are bound to God more than you are bound to your spouse. God has to take priority over your spouse. And so again, he goes on to say, for God called us to live in peace. What this is suggesting is not peace that comes by a lack of fighting. This word peace that we said before is the word shalom that speaks there a complete peace that is found in the kingdom of God. God had called everybody into the kingdom of God. But the 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 unbelieving spouse sometimes just doesn't want to go along for the ride. And so basically it comes down to if you have to make a choice between God and your unbelieving spouse, choose God first. And that's hard. And so hard that some people will not do that. Oh, I can never leave my spouse. And so what they do, they leave God. Some of you, some people you know have basically, you know, been in that situation. Where the spouse does not believe. And you will not allow that person to leave because you love that spouse so much. And so what you have to start to do is say, okay, if you won't compromise, I will compromise. I'll stop listening to my Christian music. I'll stop reading the Bible. I'll stop going to church. And we see that all the time. And pretty soon you not only no longer see the unbelieving husband, you no longer see the believing wife. And That's wrong. Again, God is the one. You were called first to God, second to your partner. So if your partner does not want to adjust his heart and he wants to leave, you don't compromise. You just let him go. Anyway, I've dumped a whole lot on you, obviously, And this morning. It's a heavy topic. It's a topic that's very difficult for me to, me to share. And this is only probably a part of it. There's probably a lot more scriptures I could have brought up. But really, I wanted to kind of give you an idea of what the biblical view of divorce is. And in case you got lost in the translation, I thought I'd kind of summarize some of the things, the findings uh, through these scriptures. Really, there's six or five key things, biblical principles regarding divorce. One is divorce was not part of God's original design. When he put Adam and Eve together, he didn't say, oh, and I'll add divorce option there. Nope, came later. Infidelity allowed an exception to the law, especially in the case of a, woman, a woman's safety. Again, it was not commanded, it was permitted. Remarriage, other than for infidelity, is considered adultery. If an unbeliever wants to remain married, stick it out. If an unbeliever wants to leave, let him or her go. Now this is tough stuff, isn't it? You know, so tough that some people are saying, Man, then why would I even want to get married? And it's the same question that the disciples asked Jesus. If this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. And as we'll see next week when Austin talks about singleness, it is a viable option. But again, having said that, there are probably some people here that are saying, you know what? You're making me feel pretty bad, Chuck, because you know I, I maybe I, I did I was in a prior marriage and I didn't I didn't leave the person because of some sort of infidelity. I left because of some of the things you said. I just we didn't get along. We fell out of love. We couldn't agree. There was a a career uh, conflict. Whatever it is, all these type of things that would be considered pretty much whimsical. And if you were to look back and give us an honest assessment, in many cases, you probably could have worked it out. And so now you're feeling this burden, this heaviness. And you're saying, well, Chuck, what do I do? Do I divorce this spouse and go back to my old one? And I would say no, because two wrongs do not make a right. But I would say what you need to do, in addition to embracing these verses I already talked about, is embracing one that you really need that gives you against the sense of freedom from the law and condemnation that you're looking for. It comes out of the passage of John where John writes... The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law, including divorce law, came through Moses. There was a reason for all that. But grace and truth, thankfully, came through Jesus Christ. And so if you've already sinned, so to speak you remarried and you got divorced for some kind of lame reason and you've since remarried what you have to do is first receive that grace the grace that comes to the cross of Jesus Christ it comes by way of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ you have to receive that forgiveness and in some cases for some of you it may mean going back to your former wife or husband and asking their forgiveness not to reconcile back but just to say you know what I was young at the time, I'm sorry. And not only go back to the spouse, maybe go back to the family and the kids that you caused collateral damage to. Again, it's not between just you and your wife. If anybody's in the middle of a divorce or experiencing a divorce in their family, you know it affects every single person in the family, especially if there's kids involved. So you're going have to go back to your family and say, I'm sorry. We could have worked it out. I'm sorry for the damage I caused you. Do you forgive me? And that's really what, again, accept that forgiveness. It comes through Jesus Christ, the grace part. But don't only accept the grace. If you don't only bring the grace into your marriage, bring the truth. And the truth, again, is that God puts a high value on marriage. He still sees it as, one, a unity of two people that is the best described by the metaphor of a joining of flesh that cannot be undone without dire consequences. Bring that into your marriage, that understanding. Bring those vows back into your existing marriage. And then make sure that if you've got any bitterness of heart left that may be carried over from your previous marriage, an attitude, something you don't like, whatever it is, or a, I'm, I'm out of here, if something goes wrong, get that out. Because what will happen if you don't, you'll end up not with the 30 to 40%, you'll be in the 70% bracket. Because you haven't dealt with the sin. You have to stop the cycle right then. So again, accept the grace, accept the truth, change again, stop sinning. In fact, some of you know the story about the, the woman that was caught up in adultery. In the Gospel of John, you know, she got caught in adultery. So she's dragged into the street and all these guys are standing around ready to heave rocks at her and kill her because she's, she's been uh, caught up in the sin of adultery. And Jesus asked them, you know, whoever... You know, uh, whoever has sinned, or is without sin, can cast the first stone, and one by one they drop their stones and walk away. And what does he say? He says to the woman, he straightens up and asks her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus didn't condemn that woman who was living in adultery. Jesus does not condemn you for being remarried or for screwing up your first wedding. Again, but what he does say, stop it. Go and sin no more. You've got the fresh start. Make your marriage work. Wherever you're at, make your marriage work. And again, if you do that, what's going to happen is you're going to not only eliminate a lot of potential hassles, or heartbreak, future heartbreak in your life, again, you're going to elevate marriage back to its rightful status as a picture of Christ in the church and be a living witness to the love, the forgiveness, and the grace of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. God in heaven, Lord, I thank you for your word. Tough word on divorce, Lord. And I pray that, again, that I had not caused any extra burden to anybody, but, again, allow them to experience the the freedom that comes from knowing that you are a good father and you extend your grace and truth to us. So, Lord, again, I pray that uh, anybody who's been through that pain of divorce would not condemn themselves, learn to forgive themselves, and appreciate the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. But, again, at the same time, elevate marriage back to its rightful spot. Live according to those vows. Believe in the vows. And again, understand marriage as a joining of, of two people that can best be, only be described by a, a joining of flesh. And so, Lord, again, I pray over the people here today. I pray that you would bless them and keep them again as a community of faith, that we would be, uh, be a living witness to your faith, love, and forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If that teaching moved you or left you with questions, let us know by sending a message to hello at bellvchristian.church. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.